Well, that's cool. Right? Hey, fellow isolators. Welcome to Well, That's Cool, a podcast about things and people I find interesting that I'm curious about or that are just plain cool. I'm back. Surprise. Let's face it. I haven't quite met my idea of a weekly podcast, but also as this quarantine, or whatever it is now, has gone on, we've all seen there are a lot more things happening in the world than just one pandemic. Real life hasn't exactly stopped, and if anything, real life has gotten a little bit more real. Maybe this podcast is more of an occasional distraction, a hobby I work on when other hobbies don't hold my interest, when it's been rainy for a week and I haven't been out riding my bike as much, Maybe not quite as planned, but I'm back with another episode now, and I've got something a bit different for you this time. Instead of focusing on what we're doing now, I'm taking you back to a trip I took in September and October last year. My mum and I, along with my aunt and uncle, traveled to Scotland for the trip of a lifetime. We spent three weeks driving and flying around the country, visiting towns big and small, and of course trying all the local drams, cakes, and teas. We had a few reasons to go on the trip. For one, it was something my mum and I promised each other we'd do if we both finished our master's degrees, which we did a couple years ago. My mum and aunt are also big-time knitters, and they wanted to go experience the Shetland Wool Week festival way up on the northernmost Scottish islands. And we also used the trip as a chance to explore some family history, visiting our ancestral homeland to see where our family came from prior to their arrival in Canada in the early 1900s. Oh, and my uncle, he likes golf, so that worked out perfectly. I decided to take time during the trip to do some recordings for another long-planned podcast project I was going to start. As regular listeners know, that never quite happened, and it took the pandemic six months later to finally get me into podcasting. But I did make some recordings, visiting museums and talking with people around the country about Scottish identity and history, that I was hoping to turn into some context for a larger project about my own family history and our journey across Scotland. As a museum worker myself, I naturally turned to the Scottish museums to learn more, and I had the chance to talk with curators at some of the nation's top museums. I've got a few interviews recorded, so this dip into the recent archives will span a couple episodes at least. Keep in mind, these were recorded in September, and were supposed to be for a far larger project, but I hope you enjoy them as they are. It all started after a 36-hour day of flying from Edmonton to Glasgow, waiting for luggage that went to Amsterdam, a train trip to Edinburgh, a visit with a friend, hiking Arthur's Seat, touring the Scottish Parliament, and a night catching up with my family. (sighs) That was a long day. I went early the next morning to the National Museum of Scotland to start my trip learning about the history of the Scottish people. While I was there an hour before public opening, you will hear some noise in the background as the staff were busy cleaning and getting things opened. I was met in the galleries by the perfect person to help me find some of the museum's most iconic pieces. My name is David Forsyth. I'm principal curator of modern and contemporary Scottish history here at National Museum Scotland. Now that means I look after the Scottish collections and curators Uh, from 1750 to the present day. So that's quite a broad spectrum of history Mm -hmm. through the period of the Jacobite Wars, through the Scottish Enlightenment, through industrialization, through the First World War, through the Second World War, right up to post-modernity. 
what have you brought me to take a look at today? Can you describe it to me? Well, yeah, I can, Ben. I thought I would um, provide you with um, something you might expect to see in the National Museum of Scotland, which is a, a suit of tartan. Um, but I chose this tartan suit because I think it um, allows us to slightly dissect the Scottish identity, to look at the Scottish identity, to consider, Scots, consider Scottish history and look at the global reach of the Scot. Can you describe it physically? Like, what are what are we looking at? Well, we're looking at, if you'd imagine, a sort of a, a kilt mm -hmm. uh, with a, a, a tartan rosette. It's a, it's a red and green. It's a, a dull hue, I would say. It's not bright and, and garish. Mm -hmm. um, of course, it's, 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 it's old, yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's very recognisable as a tartan kilt. Um, you can see it's pleated at the back. Um, we have then a tight-fitting tunic um, and essentially the, the the kilt jacket that mm -hmm. Scotsman wear today is really based on on the military on the military uniform um, so it has rather fine brass buttons um, a high collar um, and it will have buttons at, at the cuffs as, as well so it's a very it's something that you would recognize uh, mm -hmm. as, as a as a, as a slightly slightly different or tartan suit it's also got the usual accoutrements there's a a tam uh, a blue bonnet with a, a, a little red bobble in the middle with the, the two ribbons that hang down the back. And of course, the ski and do, um, the hidden dagger, the dark dagger. This is a very highly stylized 19th century ski, ski and do, um, probably later than the suit itself. And with the, this would be a little knife and a fork, but very much um, it's lost its original purpose, which was to be, you know, hidden and then used if um, enemies set upon you. Um, it's an eating set. Is this it's an eating set. It's, okay. an eating, it's an eating set with the large um, ski and do ski and do dagger. Now, what we have here is um, a tartan suit in the Ross tartan. The Ross family is traditionally from the, the north of Scotland and from Caithness, right in the, the top, the top part of the country. Um, this is a very historic tartan suit. Um, it remained in family hands till it came to the museum in 1992. But we think it was made for the visit of George IV in 1822. Now, George IV was um, the first, Scot first monarch, first British Scottish monarch to visit Scotland for, for, for many, many years. He came in a very highly stage-managed tour, stage-managed by Sir Walter Scott, the great Scottish romantic novelist, um, to show showcase... Um, Scotland to the king. The king wore a tartan suit as well. And it really was the, the final point where tartan, the wearing of tartan, was rehabilitated after the, the Jacobite wars of 1745-1746 and the final defeat of the Stuarts claims to the throne, the defeat of Bonnie Prince Charlie at Culloden. Um, whether the these earlier stories are Correct. It, this is sort of family tradition, but I mean, it is of that. It is of that style, and we think it probably were elements of it probably were around in in eighteen eighteen twenty two. But what is interesting for us is that in eighteen sixty seven, the suit emigrates along with its owner to Australia, yeah. and um, it is there until, as I said, nineteen ninety two. Now, as you know, Scots and we are sporing with a kilt. And that creature that has been um, made and fashioned into the spawn is not a Scottish mammal, but that is a flat-tailed possum indigenous to Australia. So mm. there's no way that came from, from back home. The suit remains in family hands uh, until, as I said, the early 1990s, when it was owned by um, a Uniting Church uh, of Australia minister, 
a Reverend Mr. Dumphy. And um, the owner was aware of these developments in, in Scotland, this Museum of Scotland, but now in what we call the Scotland Galleries of the National Museum of Scotland. But at that point, the project had this separate title, Museum of Scotland. And he was aware of the, the excitement, if you like, a call for objects um, that was being generated at, at the time. So very kindly, um, he decided that the, the family decided to donate this wonderful tartan suit to, to the museum in a recognition that the place for this tartan suit, although it speaks of a Scottish diaspora, which some number up to 50 million worldwide, and the Scots have had a massive impact in the Americas, South Africa, and the Antipodes, where this suit came from. But the owner decided that the best place for it would be this new National Museum of Scotland. And um, so we were very happy to show it in these displays. As you can see, this gallery, part of the gallery, is called Leaving Scotland. It's about that movement of Scots abroad. But importantly, it's not just about the movement of the Scots, the material movement of Scots. It's about what they take with them. Mm -hmm. And that very strong, that very resonant Scottish identity. Some people kind of joke that Scots who move abroad become more Scottish than mm -hmm. the Scots who are left at home. But we can leave that for analysis another another yeah, time. Yeah, you can take a look at my family later if you. Well, want that to. we can look at that as we see, and of course, many people claim Scottish ancestry, mm -hmm. have no blood um, relationship, but we call them them affinity Scots. But I think the suit speaks very strongly of that identity that they had from 1867, you know, up, up to the up to the early 1990s. Mm -hmm but then saw that the place, see that Scotland still remains the, the homeland. So for me, that's an object uh, that's resonant and powerful. So um, in a sense, it's a, a very traditional object, but it's a real metaphor for that, that Scottish connection. And it certainly um, ably amplifies the spread of the Scots abroad. Uh, and this was the, the style of, of the time, whereas now men would tend to wear the kilt with a black um, a girl, a body pants Charlie jacket for evening wear or a tweed jacket for day wear. It uh, has a very high collar, so again, that really replicates, I would say, a, a military uniform. Mm -hmm. Because this is the whole point about tartan. It's the way that the Scottish regiments were allowed to wear tartan and help to rehabilitate Tarsen through their loyalty to the, the, the Crown, the British cause, not least in, in North America. And of course, hanging from the left shoulder, mm -hmm. again with a, a, a kilt pin, a plaid pin, which will be the clan, the Ross clan crest, we have the, the plaid that is over the shoulder. That's really harping back to the days of the great kilt, this huge length of, 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 of plaid that a Highlander would wrap, would wrap himself in. Yeah. All the way around. All the way around, exactly. Yes, exactly. And of course, for the famous Highland Charge at battles such as Culloden or Falkirk or Preston Pans, divest themselves um, of the plaid and charge with the, 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 the broadsword and their targe or, or shield. So it's a very traditional, um, it, it's something that we would, we would clearly recognise. And it's iconically, and it's iconically Scottish. Mm -hmm. Scottish identity is, is, is absolutely resonant. Now, it's not just about tartan, mm -hmm. but that is a powerful metaphor for it. Right. And the journey of this object, Scotland, perhaps in 1822, all the way out to Australia in 1867, mm -hmm. and then back to, um, back to Scotland at the end of the, the 20th century. Mm -hmm. That's quite a migration in itself. Mm -hmm. And you talked a bit about tartan being obviously very iconic for Scotland, but... If, if I were to walk down a street in Edinburgh, maybe not the Royal Mile, any other street, would I see a lot of tartan? Is it, is it a part of everyday life now? 
it, it's not a, the interesting thing about tartan is is that how the Highland the garb of the Highlander became the national dress of Scotland, mm-hmm. and uh, at the moment we have an exhibition called um, Wild and Majestic: Romantic Visions of Scotland, which kind of deals with that how that kind of Highlandization of Scotland as a, as a nation. Um, so you wouldn't see it. You're seeing the Royal Mail, certainly. Yeah. Uh, you'll see a lot of tourist guides with kilts on. Um, and a lot of shops selling and them. And a, sho- a lot of shops yeah. selling them, yes. A lot of shops selling them. Um, the thing with tartan is that, uh, or the kilt, um, see in military plays, the, the, the Edinburgh Tattoo, colourful display of, of musical bandsmanship, um, military bandsmanship. But certainly tartan, would, a kilt would be more reserved for special occasions, particular weddings. And I think it's become more more, more popular, mm-hmm. even in my, my lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was 21, I was offered a, a kilt and I threw my hands up in horror. But at the time I was 30, I thought, that's a great idea, mm-hmm. that's quite cool. So there's been a change in that. So, mm-hmm. you know, many Scotsmen will, will opt to to um, to get married in, in the kilt. What's interesting, though, there's not a, really a corresponding female right. <laughs> national dress which you see in other which you see in other other other, other European European cultures. Um but it's clearly something that Scots hold dear to. But it's the way that it's used, it may be on, on purses, on handbags, mm-hmm. you know, a, a binder for a notebook. Um you know tartan is, is pretty well uh, ubiquitous. Um often you see it as um, used for girls skips and particularly in private 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 schools. Mm-hmm. So I suppose um you know, we argue in this exhibition that tartan is not really um, a, a Victorian creation. I mean, there was certainly the, the promotion of it and that, that international sort of moving out of it mm-hmm. is part of that. But the tartan was was worn, but in the Highlands. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, you know, back in the 18th century or early 19th century, Lowlanders would have thrown up their hands in horror. Wearing tartan because you know there was a great divide in, in Scottish history for many historical reasons. The Highlands and the Lowlands um, didn't particularly engage engage with each other. But um, most Scots now, without being too generous, would, would claim this as their national their national dress. Mm-hmm. And that's where this object that object really do, does that. You know, it speaks to Scots here, mm-hmm. and it also speaks to not just the Scottish diaspora, but also the many international visitors that come to Edinburgh each year, mm-hmm. and particularly come to the National Museum of Scotland to learn about Scottish history. Mm-hmm. So it's a pointer in the story of, of Scottish history. It absolutely fits into our, our collecting, uh, and also the way that we've tried to display and, and talk about this, the story. National Museum Scotland has very generously let me share an image of the Ross Tartan for this episode's show notes, which you can find on my website at benfast.ca slash cool. Tartan designs would become a bit of a theme later in my family's trip as we ventured through the Western Isles, even though our ancestors probably wouldn't have worn the patterns coming from the lowlands as they did. Either way, the cultural icon was clearly visible in all the tourist shops as the stereotype of Scottish identity, but getting out to the small villages and the windswept Hebrides really helped me see how the history of production reflects the landscape, agriculture, and history of Scotland. My mum and aunt both bought some reams of cloth, I think that's what you call it, and I was very happy to receive a little bag made of official Harris tweed for Christmas. Visit my website at benfast.ca slash cool to see some pictures of the bag and of our visit to Lewis and Harris. We'll be back with David Forsyth to hear about a much less flashy item that speaks to Scotland, a changing nation, in a minute. But first... (laughs) 
I don't actually have a new member of the Curious Quarantine Club to introduce in this episode. Normally I'd take this moment to play a clip from a friend or listener telling their own short story about life in isolation or about something they've learned or found cool, but I haven't received one for a bit. Instead, I'll tell you about an old hobby I've gotten back into. When I was a kid, I think about five or six, my step-uncle Steve gave me a die-cast model of a Porsche 911. It was super cool. I loved the way the spoiler came up and the doors would open. The tires could even come off the rims, and I spent many an evening taking it apart as far as I could. And while this was a fun toy for a kid, it was probably meant to stay on a shelf, to be appreciated as a little homage to precision engineering and dreams of speed. As I grew older, I was still fascinated by the idea of building a small version of something cool like that Porsche, but I've never really been a car guy. Instead, I'm sure influenced by the time I spent flying over southern Ontario with my dad, I got into model airplane kits. My mum and I made a model of the Spirit of St. Louis, the airplane Charles Lindbergh flew solo across the Atlantic in 1927. The thick silver enamel paint showed so many misapplications of paint and a dozen or so thumbprints from a not-so-dexterous nine-year-old. The first model I did, or at least remember doing, mostly on my own, was my favorite plane, the P-51D Mustang. I was probably 11 or 12 by then, and the quality is a lot better, but I ripped the final decal, a black-and-white checkerboard pattern that went around the nose, so it's never been finished. Maybe I'm a bit of a hoarder, but I still have that plane, now with a broken wheel and a lost exhaust duct, because I keep telling myself, someday I'll find a decal sheet and finish it. I've come and gone from the model kits since the ill-fated Mustang, making a handful of models over the years and even getting into paper models, which was super fun and actually a much cheaper version of the hobby. But throughout that two-decade span, one thing has remained constant. I keep buying model kits. I went to the big air show in Oshkosh, Wisconsin with my dad five times as a teenager, each time coming back with one or three gently packed into my suitcase. Their crumpled cardboard boxes are still on my shelf. I'd stop by the hobby store, and like any bookstore visit, my other guilty pleasure, I'd leave with a couple old discount boxes, probably missing parts or so old they aren't worth the plastic they're made of. I even bought one in Japan and, go figure, haven't made it yet because the instructions are all in Japanese. About the end of making the third episode of this podcast, I was looking at the stack of boxes jammed up in the corner of my closet, thinking of all the potential fun that could be had, and decided finally to get some done and off the pile. Because it's been a year since the last one I made, and about five years since I've made them consistently, I started with a couple old kits to practice. I made an Airfix Spitfire that turned out to be a snap-together kit, but it was still challenging and was good practice for painting. Because I made a Spitfire, I had to make its nemesis, a Messerschmitt BF109E. This was an even older model, molded in a bright blue plastic for some reason. I had to go through three paint conversion charts to match the paint colors they make today, and I accidentally made the cockpit windows opaque, but making these two old kits was fun and good practice for the modern kits still on my shelf. Just tonight, I finished up one of the kits I've been saving for 15 years, an SR-71 Blackbird by the model company Revel Monogram. It turned out to be a struggle, actually. The instructions weren't always helpful and the parts are pretty delicate, but it looks cool finished now. I'm going to give it to my friend Peter as a very late thanks for helping me move last year. With all this practice, I'm going to try my first ship model next, a much newer kit of the Second World War Japanese aircraft carrier Zuikaku. Hope I'm pronouncing it right. 
It is one seven-hundredth scale, meaning the little airplanes that will sit on its deck are just about one centimeter long, and I have to paint them three colors, and put decals on them. <sighs> if you want to see some pictures of the models I've made in quarantine, check out this episode's notes on my website at benfast.ca cool. Let me know what you think. Is my practice paying off? What airplane kit should I make next? Do you have a favorite kit to make? If you want to join my Curious Quarantine Club, visit the website at benfast.ca cool, or send a short audio message about what you're curious about or doing in isolation to wellthatscoolpod at gmail.com. I hope to hear from you on a future episode. Now, back to David Forsyth as he tells me a different story of Scottish industry. Um, so, Ben, we've moved up a... Uh, a level to level six to Scotland, a changing nation, and you hear it's quite noisy in the background, and that's deliberate. This is the galleries, the displays which show Scotland in the 20th and 21st centuries, so really show industrial Scotland at its height and then deal with deindustrialisation and, and, and post modernity. Um, you can hear there's lots of noise in the background, it's a very visceral gallery. I think you'll agree that we've come from a sort of more quiet, sequestered place. We've now got um, colour quotes um, to try and get a sense of that intensity, the visceral nature of industrial Scotland. Um, I mentioned that the galleries downstairs um, where we were looked at Scotland at the height of empire, looked at industrialisation. But here we are really, I suppose, at the end of industrialisation. And to me, um, this is a very important object. We're looking at a case with work gear. There's a hard hat, white hard hat. There's visors. There are safety gloves. Um, there's allusion to a place called Ravenscraig. Now, Ravenscraig um, was a, a major steelworks in Lanarkshire. Lanarkshire was one of the industrial counties of Scotland. Um, one of these, one of the claims of Scotland was, or the west of Scotland was, it was a workshop of empire. Uh, Clyde built ships, well known to, over, over the world. In 1913, a quarter of the world's tonnage was built on the Clyde. This is a massive. Uh, industrial complex, very connected, coal, mining, iron and steel founding and shipbuilding and other heavy engineering. Um, beside these, the heavy work boots here, um, the, the safety with the steel toe caps, I wanted to show you, it might be one of the most unprepossessing objects in the museum, uh, it's number nine here, but to me this encapsulates the very last moment of the death of industrial Scotland because when this factory closed in June 1992, this huge steelworks, that really was the end of, of heavy engineering in Scotland. And this was a splash, so when the, you can see from the photograph there, the large drum, when the guys pour the, the molten steel, this was collected. And I think it's a, it, this to me shows the power of museums, how museums can actually, at a moment, catch something that, that's so important. I mean, it might be a medal, we've passed some medals there, that would talk of a military engagement, you know, courage and fortitude. But here we have, as a piece of material culture, the end of industrial Scotland. Um, so it's a very different view to what we've looked, and clearly the museum is not just a, a, a picture postcard view of Scotland. We, we deal with all aspects, um, the way that the witches, so-called witches, were dealt with in the 17th century, um, up here to the industrial realities of Scotland in the 20th and 21st century, yeah. including all the social problems that came with that. Yeah. And clearly the loss of the steelworks in 1992 has a massive impact on, on, on local communities. So it's really to, I suppose, end, uh, to, to tell the, 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 the story that you know, we're dealing with 
the real Scotland uh, as well as that ima- imagined Scotland. Um, but all traditions are imagined and created. Mm. And sort of Scotland today, in a sense, too, because this is only 27 years ago. Exactly. This is just this 27 years ago. I mean, what we do try to show in this gallery is that that industry changed. That you know that they were ele- electronic industry developed. And um, there's still uh, some shipbuilding in the Clyde, but not that not that extent. Not the way that we describe us as being the workshop of the the workshop of the empire. But um, this is always one of my surprise surprise objects. It's a real contrast to the the Ross Tartan suit downstairs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Was there a curator there? In '92, they picked it up off the floor, or was it a matter of it came? It with it, what, it, it it did actually. Um, I think it was one of the managers had actually collected collected this this type of material, and then curators, you know, realised that this was a kind of a fairly important moment in Scottish Scottish modern history, but particularly Scottish industrial history. So that was collected. So that's good. Mm-hmm. That's what we need: creative curators. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. The last time I was in Edinburgh, I visited the National Museum of Scotland just as they closed some galleries for the final stages of a major multi-year redevelopment. This time, I got to see it all, from the Lewis Chessman to Dolly the Sheep and everything in between. As the bells tolled for 10 a.m. and the doors opened to the public, David brought me down to the main floor to frame the museum as part of Scottish identity itself. Okay, so Ben, I brought you to a grand gallery of the Victorian building. Now, this first half of this opened in 1866, so we, a few years back we celebrated the 150th anniversary. A few years later, the second half um, opened. You can just see where these two pillars are here. That's the join. There was a brick wall there where they built one half. When it opened, it was the largest public building in, in Scotland, so that's interesting as a celebration of, of art and industry and the output of industrial Scotland, industrial Britain. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a multidisciplinary museum, so we have um, galleries of natural sciences, world cultures, art design and uh, fashion, science and technology, and of course where we've come from, the Scotland galleries. So here, uh, this, this development um, took over 15 years and cost £80 million pounds to transform into this new National Museum of Scotland. You've pointed out this wonderful window in the world that we have behind us um, because there's a huge array of objects there and this shows the, the breadth and depth of our collections. You know, Not least, we've opened new galleries with our ancient Egyptian collections and, uh, and East Asia. So that was the, the final the final piece in the jigsaw of redeveloping this Victorian this Victorian vision, mm-hmm. designed by Captain Francis Fouk, who was a Royal Engineer, um, but using technology um, at, the, at the time. And as I mentioned through here, we show Scotland to the world and the world to Scotland. So we've seen Scotland to the world through there with the Scotland galleries, but here with our collections from world cultures, art and design, science and technology, natural sciences, we're able to show the world to Scotland. Um, so we say actually we've got the world under one roof here. Mm-hmm. You won't get wet. <laughs> you will do when you step outside. Right. Hopefully. But you can see everything from a giant, the, the skeleton of a giant elk, a Buddha, a beautiful drinking fountain um, of cast iron um, made and manufactured in Glasgow by the McFarlane Company at the end of the at the end of the, ni- the 19th century. Uh, and I think all of these things together. Um, have really put the National Museum of Scotland on the map. Since this project began, ooh, way back in 2008, I think, and we've trebled our, our visitor numbers. 
and we're now the most popular visitor attraction outside of uh, outside of London. Mm. Uh, so that's something we're very proud of and mm. work very hard to um, you know to, to, to keep up. And of course, we work with colleagues in digital media too to sort of expand and reach other reach other aud- audiences, those that can't come come to the museum. Yeah, this is very much the the iconic space. Like this is what you'd see in the pictures of the National Museum of Scotland, that sort of thing too. So, so as a as an identity of the National Museum of Scotland, this ah, is well, it is. But actually, when that opened, because when that building opened next door in nineteen ninety eight, we had had the devolution referendum in nineteen ninety seven, and the Parliament opened in nineteen ninety nine. Right. So it actually sandwiched between two quite historic events. So in fact, that building became very much one of the symbols of the new post-devolution Scotland in, right. in the late in the late 90s and indeed such was the sort of cultural resonance of it that the first coalition between the Labour Party and the Liberal Democrat Party and the Scottish Parliament at, at, at Holyrood was signed in that in that mm-hmm. building and we have that document in our political displays uh, up, upstairs we managed to get that right. Um, so the, the, that had certainly had a resonance to Scotland at, at that at that time. Okay. What's happened here is though the, the museum changed. There was actually different names for both both sides. We'll get into that history, but the whole site became known as the National Museum of Scotland, and that's mainly because we looked again at these collections here. This amazing collection of international material couldn't have been collected had it not been for the number of Scots who went out as administrators, missionaries. Commercial men, commercial men. Um, so that really that really reflects the number of Scots that that, 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 went, that went abroad. So mm-hmm. we talk about this this thread of Scotland the world throughout these throughout these galleries. Mm. Yeah, neat. And so the re- the renovation last time I was here, it was in or nearing the end. I think it was the beginning of the final phase or something. Well, like that, that was so that was our ancient Egypt and um, uh, uh, Eastern Asian galleries right. were the last two pieces right. in that in that in that jigsaw. And it's now done. Ah, well, <laughs> the Victorian building is done, but we're now the very, very early stages of looking at the Scotland galleries because they are now 21, nearly 21 years old. And as you know, permanent galleries, have, we reckon these days, have a life shelf of about 20, Not so 20 no, yeah. 25 years. So although they feel quite fresh and new, um, and many there's been different developments in, in historiography and museology um, that, we need to, that we need to look at. So... That could be the. Um, I could finish my career start. You know, if I could finish my career finishing off or starting anew, and what you know, what I came to do. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of excitement here. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for showing me. Around. You're welcome, yeah. Ben. And if there's one thing that I go and look at, what would you recommend that we haven't seen today? Do you have oh, a favorite? You need, you need to go and see. Um, you need to go and see the Lewis Chessman, don't okay. you? And that Harry Potter connection. Right. Seeing that's driving so many tourists there. So sure. go and see them. Um, probably made in Tron time. In, in, in Norway, but absolutely iconic um, uh, objects, which again look at that movement in and out of Scotland. Mm-hmm. So enjoy. I will. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Ben. Thank you. A big thanks to David Forsyth, Principal Curator of Modern and Contemporary History at the National Museum of Scotland, for taking me on a tour of the museum's Scottish history galleries. Thanks also to Elaine McIntyre and my friend Rob Coston for helping arrange my visit. The NMS museums have started reopening in August. Three out of the four are open already. And if you get the chance to travel to Scotland again, I highly recommend visiting the National Museum of Scotland. 
And until then, why not visit nms.ac.uk to explore and learn about the museum's online collections through their Museum at Home pages. It's really cool to be able to relive my visit right on my computer or phone. Thanks as always to Ron Yamauchi for the theme tune and to Anna Schroeder of Another Design for the cool podcast logo. Check out her work at annatherdesign.com. Other music heard during this episode and all the other podcast stuff is done by me, Ben Fast. If you want to join my Curious Quarantine Club, visit the website at benfast.ca slash cool or send a short audio message about what you're curious about or doing in isolation to wellthatscoolpod at gmail.com. While you're there, suggest something for me to look into for the podcast. You can find the show on Twitter at well underscore that's cool or Facebook at well that's cool pod. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, thanks for listening and have fun being curious, staying safe, and washing your hands. 